agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Hey, good morning, Mike. Yeah, I don't know why I said your name like that. Jay Carson. It was kind of like a big intro kinda, there. Yeah. A lot to live up to there Carson, anyway. Yeah. But uh, how are you doing today? Well, I'll, you know, I'll tell you, as, as I relayed earlier, for some reason, I, I completely overslept uh and and uh got up by um you know with like just 10 minutes before we were supposed to start recording so i would i would describe myself as uh awake uh but not woke okay (laughs) i like that yeah definitely not woke uh all right well before we do get started just a few quick things first off we want to thank our newest patreon supporters Kristen d elliot um let's see ndr 3as and that's a you know obviously a screen name i would assume but thank you peter jordan and mitchell and elliot wrote in to tell us that i'm glad there's an outlet for serious political discussion and not the hysteria of other political news sources keep up the good work and i know sometimes people would say well occasionally mike maybe ventures a little into the hysteria end but jay tends to pull me back so it's good, I guess. And Kirk also said that he appreciates the view from both sides. And of course, as a Patreon supporter, you get, you know, that second full length episode every week and ad free versions of all our shows at some point when buyers are actually buying ads on shows. And we have them as well as various other things. But, you know, a few days ago, one of our key supporters wrote to say, you know, while patron exclusive content is great, the reason he supports the show is not in exchange for more stuff, but because he cares about what we're trying to do, civil bipartisan discussion. He knows how little of it is there there is out there and he wants to do his part to keep it going. And it's because of supporters like him and you know who you are. Um, we can still manage to give access to all of our shows to people who, you know, find what we're doing valuable, but aren't currently in a position to support the show financially. And if that's you, please send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make sure to get you set up with access to everything that we put out. And for everyone else, to become a sustaining supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or to make a one-time pledge of support through PayPal, you can go to politicsguys.com slash support and click on the PayPal link you'll find there. And Jay, you know, mostly we have U.S. listeners, but around 15% of our audience is from outside of the United States. And it's it's, it's kind of cool. A lot of UK people, especially. And I want to let those listeners know, all of you, that Patreon recently made a change that allows you to support the show in British pounds or euros, which means that there are none of those weird foreign currency fees if you've been converting from pounds or euros to US dollars. So there's that, which is nice. And then finally, We are going to be not exactly taking off next week, but we're going to be doing something a little bit different next week. In place of our Saturday, August 15th show will be uh, an interview I recently did with political scientists Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson. And they've collaborated on a number of books over the years, all of which I've read and many of which I've assigned in my classes with the sort of uh, disclaimer to the students that this is a left of center view. And then we talk about, you know, that and so forth, because I do not. At least I try not to indoctrinate in my classes, certainly. But their latest book is called Let Them Eat Tweets, How the Right Rules in an Age of Extreme Inequality. Now, despite the sound of the title, it's not 
it's not a Trump focused, Trump bashing book. And in the book, I think they make a number of really good points, though I definitely don't agree with all of their premises or all of their conclusions. And uh, Jay had a chance to listen to the interview as well. And what we're going to do is after the interview, there'll be some discussion between us about various parts of it and, and to get in a more conservative viewpoint. And I think that'll be a really uh, worthwhile thing and you should get a lot out of it. And I was glad I've had Jacob Hacker on the show a number of times and finally got the full team on. And I thought it was a really interesting interview. So that's going to be Saturday the 15th. Then on Wednesday the 19th will be my interview with Ohio Supreme Court Justice Michael Donnelly. And Justice Donnelly and I talked about, well, the Michael Flynn case and legal fictions, kind of interesting thing, and also Paul Manafort and issues with sentencing, uh, making the plea negotiation process fully transparent. And the really kind of, I would say, sort of radical thing Justice Donnelly did when he was a trial court judge to make the process entirely transparent and also a bunch of other things like sentencing databases and so forth. There was, uh, I wasn't sure what to expect from it, but he was a great guy. It was a fascinating conversation that I think has implications, you know, really nationally. It's not just an Ohio thing, even though he's an Ohio Supreme Court justice. So, uh, so yeah, and I know Jay, you think very highly of Justice Donnelly as well. Oh uh, yeah, no, Mike. Uh, my, I've known I've known uh, uh, Justice Donnelly for you know probably fifteen twenty years, and actually we live in the same the same town. Um, uh, and and I yeah see him and talk to him uh, you know at, at events. Well, used to. I mean, when, yeah. when we when we had events. <laughs> um, but no, he he is a great guy, and and I, I you know. For all, for all the folks and all the heat that I take, and I see one of the, one of the viewer questions that we'll be answering later is, uh, have ever voted for a Democrat? And, and the answer is, of course. I mean, our and our Ohio Supreme Court is uh, elected on a, uh, you know, you have a party. Well, you, it's, it's technically the, the you, you in the general election they're not partisan, but uh, uh, Michael Donnelly was the the Democratic nominee for a Supreme Court seat, and I, I was happy to vote for him. Um, because he's, he's, uh, one, he's a good judge, great guy, smart guy, and, uh, really wants, uh, works to do the right thing. So, so yeah, I'm, 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 uh, I think that was great that we, we got him on. So. Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to mention also that both of these episodes will be freely available to everyone. So both the Saturday and the midweek episode, and then the next week after that, we'll be back on our regular schedule. And of course, if something Colossal should happen between August 8th today when we're recording in the 15th. We can always do a special emergency episode and let's just hope that that's. We'll be not, there for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, with all that out of the way, let's, let's get to our first story of the day. And that's negotiations between House Democratic leadership and the White House on additional coronavirus relief have collapsed. And President Trump has said he plans to act unilaterally by issuing executive orders to resume lapsed federal unemployment benefits, reinstate an expired moratorium on evictions, extend the suspension of student loan payments, and defer collection of federal payroll taxes. Now, three points of main points of contention here seem to be but in the negotiations were the amount of unemployment benefits which Democrats wanted to keep at $600 per week with the White House countering with 400 aid to state and local governments with Democrats calling for nearly a trillion dollars and the White House offering 200 billion and liability protection for businesses. Now, uh, there's no mention of liability protection in the House's Heroes Act which passed on May 15th. 
But Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has repeatedly emphasized that legislation without strong liability protection would be dead on arrival in the Senate. And of those three things, it seems like the real sticking point was the aid to state and local government, reportedly the issue where there was just not a whole lot of room for compromise. Um, and so what this means, at least in the short run, is, uh, uh, of course, a longer and possibly permanent expiration of that those additional jobless benefits. Schools not getting the $100 billion or more to help with opening and operating under pandemic conditions. And that was something there was actually bipartisan agreement on. Uh, no additional funding for virus testing, as cases seem to be rising in a lot of in a lot of instances and no relief for state and local government. So all in all, it seems to me that this is a pretty significant failure of government. Uh, a lot to talk about here, Jay. I thought maybe we could start with those things separating the parties and then get into the whole issue of the constitutionality and wisdom of the president's proposed executive orders, if, if that's yeah. OK. So. So, so let's start with those extended unemployment benefits. Uh, what, what do you think about the positions there? What, what's your, what's your view on this? You know, as, as, as I had, had read, or this is earlier reporting uh, of these, the, the $600 a week uh, additional benefit, the issue uh, that concerns uh, many Republicans, I think many, many people across the country is uh According to some estimates, roughly five out of six people uh, would be making more uh, under the, you know, with the enhanced benefits than they would had they been working at their prior job. Um, this is also this is a little bit of a weird recession in that, uh, in in some cases, not all cases, but in many cases, this isn't a matter of jobs have been destroyed, jobs jobs have been lost. Uh, the jobs are still there, just the people can't go back to them, uh, or the 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 employer uh, fully intends to to ramp back up uh, once once demand comes. And 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 the the sense is that when there's a vaccine or 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 something else, some other sort of you know we we reach a point where uh, government says, okay, we've we've reached enough herd immunity, but whatever, um, that this will all come back. It, it's not a this isn't a business cycle. Um, recession. Um, uh, it, it happened quick, and I think it, it could it could turn around quickly based on on things that are completely unrelated to economics. Um, so there's there's that that concern is that listen, if people are looking to bring employees back, but you can't get employees back because uh, they are making the quite rational choice of of uh, look, I'll um, uh, you know I'll, I'll I make more uh, by not working. Um, uh, that's that's a problem. Uh, I think it's a problem. Uh, you know, to if you want to, I don't know, put quotes on it morally. I, I, I you know, I, I'd, I'd hesitate to say it's a, it's a moral issue, but, but it's what it's what you would call a moral hazard, I guess, right? Um, so I, I think that's that's a big issue. Um, yet, uh, you know, the Republican GOP is still willing to go to four hundred in additional. Uh, benefits. So my my sense is that's something that that probably gets worked out, um, and and maybe it it might take uh, you know the next uh, step uh, politically to to do it. But I, I think you end up with a compromise there. Um, you know, so, yeah, and because I because look, Republicans have agreed in principle on the enhanced um, enhanced unemployment benefits, and I, I think also once. When push comes to shove uh, on that politically, uh, I think that 
that issue tilts towards Republicans. Um, uh, so well, when I you say the, when you say that issue tilts toward Republicans, can you, can you just I'm not clear on what you mean by that? Yeah, no, I, I think I think as things play out, right, um, if the if if Democrats want to make the, the political issue of, hey, um, they are slashing uh, additional jobless benefits to an additional four hundred dollars a week. I think that's a losing political case for, for Democrat House members that we you know, we would say. Uh, you get an additional 600. Again, this is additional on on top of uh, 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 unemployment. Uh, it's it's additional on top of uh, some states are you know provide uh, additional unemployment as well. Um, and and so I, I guess that's that's the that's the case. I mean, look, if this was a regular recession, um, you know, you would just re- be receiving the regular unemployment, which is again, it would would be a, a big hurt for a lot of people yeah. um but but still it, this is yeah i, I want yeah, my, my, my sense my, my sense is i think there's a, a a lot of folks in the public would agree when they say you know what people shouldn't people shouldn't make more uh for not working than they do for working yeah. a couple points there i, I think um, if the gop point, points that out i think that's sure. that's a winning argument and, well i think it's uh certainly it's an anecdotal argument that a lot of people are embracing uh, a lot of folks on the right are pointing have regularly, including Treasury Secretary, pointed to the University of Chicago study that found that uh, 68% of people are making more on the enhanced benefits than they do their jobs. But the authors of that study also point out that that doesn't include benefits that people would get with their jobs that they're not getting. And also, the authors of the study pointed out that they found no evidence that the extra money was keeping people from taking jobs. And there were actually also five other major studies that have been done that have looked for any evidence that people are not taking jobs by, uh, and staying on the employment. Well, and they I, found, I'd agree. And they found no evidence of that. With that. Yeah, no, no. And I, I would agree 100 percent with that. But I, I want to point out the reason, you know, the reason in this case with, with a lot of people, I, and again, I don't have a study in front of me, but this is just sort of the common sense. In most cases, a lot of people are are fully expecting and that, you know, they will return to their own job. Um, so, and so to the extent that they're, you're saying, well, it's not keeping people from finding new jobs. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. But going forward, uh, as places start to reopen, um, and, and the employer says, Hey, would you like to come back to your old job? There are going to be some people who will say, well, yeah, you know, I've got another six months of making more money, um, uh, by not working. I'll just, I'll just sit it out and I'll find something else then. Well, they wouldn't that necessarily. Is, that, yeah, that is the concern going forward. It, it's it's less of a um, uh, that that as 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 the recovery happens, uh, you're not going to have people going back to work because they're better off not going back to work. Well, I mean that's that's a, I guess that's an important. I guess that that might be a concern down the line. But right now there are somewhere around 5.4 million job openings and around 31 million people on unemployment, and so. I think that's uh, that's like the concern of, you know, of somebody uh, uh, of the proverbial 98 pound weakling saying, well, you know, I'd lift weights, but I'm just concerned I'll become muscle bound. Uh, you know, I, I, that's uh, I think that's looking way too far ahead of things. And of course, one simple way to deal with that is to tie is, is to tie these enhanced benefits, not to some 
arbitrary date in the future, which never made any sense to me. And I don't know why they did that in the CARES Act. I think that was that was dumb from a policy perspective. They should have tied it to economic indicators like the uh, like the unemployment rate in states or even in or even in counties, uh, you know, more more specifically, because, of course, that can vary a lot within areas between states. And in fact, that's what a bipartisan group oh gosh, of economists that would, ter- that would be terrible. But I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. <laughs> So tying benefits to economic conditions would be terrible. No, explain to me why you think that would be terrible. I'm interested. Well, you know, that's shown up um, in in a lot of uh, states. This is pre-pandemic, for example, um, uh, Illinois. And it depends on how you you would draw these these districts and how you massage the data. But the state of Illinois, um, Chicago had, uh, you know, tremendous poverty and unemployment issues. Uh, but that doesn't mean the rest of the state does. And, and they sort of imported uh, that data because, you know, Chicago is, a, is an 800 pound gorilla in Illinois. Um, that data can bring down the, the uh, employment rate for the rest of the state, um, which means, oh, now now every place in Illinois qualifies for these additional. And I, I'm, I, I'm blanking on the, the program right now. But my, my concern is that uh, if if you do that, there's there's sort of the self fulfilling prophecy, right? That um, well, unemployment uh, is is you know we'll we'll keep paying you because unemployment isn't going down. Um, but but if the reason that unemployment isn't going down is because we keep paying you, um, that's that's. That's Except the there's issue, no right? evidence that it actually happens, and so you're you're talking anecdotally, but there's uh, no, no evidence talking, that no, it actually me, happens. Let's put it this way. I'll ask you a quick question. If if your option, um, and, and again, you have a pretty good job, and I have a pretty good job, uh, and and those are both sort of long term, you know, career type type jobs that you say, yeah, I want to go back to because it's part of. Who. If you're somebody uh, who works at uh, in the service industry, uh, and you know, maybe you work at one restaurant for a while and you don't like it, and maybe you go work for another one. Um, if you're if you're sitting at home and you're saying, well, look, I've uh, I'm I'm out of work, but I'm I'm getting more than what I did when I was at work. Um, should I go back? I, I mean, I, I don't I don't think that's I mean, I don't think you need a study to to say that um, people will will say I I would I would yes I'll I'll choose the not working and more money option um, over uh, over going back and and losing money. Um, so I, and again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even faulting anybody for that because I think that's the completely rational thing to do. And as, as stuff starts opening up, I think employers, there's, there's a reasonable concern that, that people won't come back or won't come back quickly enough, uh, if they don't have reason to. Got it. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And that, that actually, that actually makes sense to me. And uh, as you pointed out earlier, Things are different because of the because of the pandemic, and so yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point. And I guess I would say I mean, that. Let me let me put it this way: say okay. say you are a, um, uh, you, you work at a restaurant, you're a bartender, whatever, uh, and in and you're laid off, but now you're getting the unemployment plus you're getting, um, uh, the uh, the, the six hundred dollar kicker, um, and. You know, you say, look, you know what? I know Amazon's hiring, um, but you know, well, hell, why should I go schlub boxes for you know eight hours a day uh, when you know the place I work, the restaurant I work, will probably be back open full service within a couple months. 
Uh, or I can just find, go find another restaurant. That's, you know, I could do the same thing within a couple months. Um, so yeah, no, thanks. I'll just, I'll sit here and, uh, flatten the curve for you. So, I mean, that's, that's to me just sort of the common sense sort of. So you, you feel like, you feel like when we have, uh, you know, again, this is what the point I was making. Cause I, I, you, you had me already, but you wanted to go on, but that's fine. But you know, I, yeah. I understood your, your logic there and I think there's something to it, but I think the additional part of this is another reason why this is not like a normal a normal recession, a normal major recession is because the more people we have out, the more transmission we have and the greater spread and there are economic and health consequences with that. And so perhaps what I was going to suggest was that maybe tying it to unemployment, but also tying it to still uh, there being a declared state of state of emergency, health emergency. And maybe that's something that you'd be more comfortable. I suppose that's, that's possible. I mean, if, if you're, if your assumption is that that people who aren't going to work are are also just staying home and um, not mingling, well, they're um, mingling less certainly. And the I advice don't know. is, How do you know? well, I mean, and the advice is there, there's, there's, there's been a lot of well, apparently Trump supporters are right because they're out there and you know and but uh, but yeah, I think you can agree that it's better. If, if for, anything, I'd say, hey, I got look. I, I got more money and I got all this time on my hands. I'm, I'm, I'm going out. So you think that's how people that that's uh, that that's how you think people react? I, in some cases, yeah, I, I think. But I'm saying I, I don't think if, if the plan is we're going to uh, increase unemployment benefits because it will keep people at home. Uh, I, I don't I don't think that follows. I, I don't. I mean, maybe in some cases you say, yeah, well, I guess they're not they're not going to their job. Um, but uh, if if they if they were going to their job and their job required them to wear a mask and required them to do X, Y and Z and all these things. Uh, but, um, you know, in their private life, they might be uh, uh, less responsible about the, those things. I, I I I don't know that there's a straight line that says paying people to stay home uh, prevents the spread of the virus. So there's a there's a there's a certainly a, a relationship between. People not being out as much and less spread. Sure. No. Absolutely. Yeah. And and but 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 I guess my my point is, um, these people might not be out at work, uh, but they might be out somewhere. They might. You know. Sure. Absolutely. And, and if they, but they if wouldn't they have out, to be. If they were out at work, they would be required to follow certain protocols. You know, in most responsible places. Um, but you you wouldn't necessarily have that. Uh, if there, I, I, this and like, I, and I, I bring this up because just because I had this is there was an interesting question that's come up uh, in Ohio about um, uh, keeping bars open. The governor put uh, put on an order saying that uh, bars have to stop serving liquor after 10 p.m. Uh, and a number of uh, bar owners have sued, saying, "Look, this is arbitrary and capricious," and a lot of our business comes after 10 p.m. Um, now, setting aside the the, the merits of the argument. Uh, someone I had talked to, uh, a bar owner, made the point to me that, look, the people who are work who who go after 10 p.m. A lot of them are service industry folks, and if they're they're going to drink somewhere, and if they're not going to a bar, they're going to go to a house party. Um, and if they go to the the bar or the restaurant, well, then you know they're going to have tables are ideally should be you know set set six feet apart and. There's going to be some level of social distancing and mask wearing and all that kind of stuff. 
It's a pretty uh, ridiculous argument. Why not? It's like, know, it's, my, like, my, it's like saying, it's, let's it's, legalize it's, all drugs because, you know, people are going to do them. And so we might as well just make it safe and at home. It's, you know, the, the I mean, no, that's not that's just not the case. If there are fewer opportunities, a lot of people will just say drink at home or some people won't drink. And so, I, I mean, I understand it's a very self-serving argument, but I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a very good one. Have you ever have you ever worked in the service industry? Yeah. Well, I, look, you you know that people. You know, you you go out afterwards. Um, and I I I think you know, look, it's it's difficult to quantify, but um, my my point is, paying people not to go to work uh, doesn't mean that they're not going to go someplace else. That's that's what I'm. Oh, I, I agree. I'm, yeah, I mean, that's, it's that's not the, sure, absolutely. So, so if the if the goal is saying, listen, we're going to uh, uh, pay people not not to go to work. Uh, because there's this this other benefit um, uh, in terms of, of uh, preventing the spread, uh, I, I just I just don't think that argument has legs. I think there are two. I mean, there are two things that that the, that the six hundred dollars is trying to do. Number one, it's uh, in part yes, trying to keep people maybe not to go to work for health reasons, but also it's trying to keep people afloat when there just yeah. aren't that many jobs out there. And I think that those are two very reasons. Now. That all being said, you know, you and I maybe would disagree uh, on the amount and so forth. You know, this that bipartisan uh, commission of economists I mentioned suggested that a uh, uh, that a reasonable compromise would be four hundred dollars a week. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that would be a reasonable compromise. And actually, I think that in a in a better world. Uh, there would be uh, a legislation that would be passed specifically on that. Just a, a, and that's actually something that I'll give a Republicans credit. They were willing to do, and House Democrats said we're not willing to do just a small single thing. We want we want to hold out for this larger package. And I think that while politically I get that, I think from a policy perspective and from taking care of people, uh, I think at least in the short term that's not. The right thing to do, though, longer term, I know the argument is, well, you know, that that's better for people longer term if we can just hold out. But then it becomes kind of a game of chicken that you're playing with people's uh, health and livelihoods. And I have a real problem with that. So there's that. Um, All right. So we're agreed that we'd we'd both be OK with 400. If I were if I were in Congress, I would push for I, I would I would certainly at this point with the negotiations having broken down, I would want to see a bill. That just has extension of the benefits, and I'd happily vote for four hundred dollars. Absolutely. Okay. And let me, you know, I can because Mark, Mike, my, my again, my um, uh, my mind is is so uh, uh, facile. I can I can hold uh, contradicting arguments at, at the same time. Um, was was that Melville who said that? that um, but a- anyway, um, the argument for uh, additional money, I think, is 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 one that, that you didn't make. And that is sort of the stimulus effect. Yeah. Um, and there's been, that, you know, that it, yeah. And that, that, that I think there's, there's something there too. Uh, studies uh, have again, found that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I, there's, there's a balancing between that stimulus effect and the not going back to work effect. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, I think $400 is, is, uh, <laughs> you know, again, none of these things are going to be exact, but, but I think if, you know, that, I, I think the other, the other point of this, I know we've talked about this a lot, but, is there there sends a a message right that uh look this is a temporary thing and it's going to 
uh, go away, right? Um, this is not the new way of life. Uh, so $600 in the initial part of the pandemic, uh, as things begin to reopen, we're stepping this back to 400, uh, and then, you know, eventually that'll expire. And hopefully by that time, uh, we've, we've got a recovery going on. So, yeah, well, the, unfortunately our, our policy about fighting the pandemic recovery seems to be mostly, hopefully uh, it'll go away, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, let, let's move on to that second part, aid to state and local governments. Uh, I mean, my take is that uh, I can see where House or sorry, House and Senate Republicans in the White House might balk a little bit at a trillion dollars or right around a trillion dollars. But, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of estimates on this and one uh, uh a couple of I've seen actually peg the losses to state and local, just sorry, just to state governments that are only COVID related around a little over half a trillion dollars. And that doesn't, of course, include the like 89,000 local governments in the U.S., many of which are also losing money. And the CARES Act, which was that original legislation that provided $150 billion. Uh, how so? White House negotiation negotiators say, "Well, we'd be offering two hundred billion." I think a reasonable compromise here would be like around four hundred billion. I was wondering what you thought. Um, you know, I, I would uh, agree that I think aid to state and local governments ought to be part of the package. Um, the concern, and and I think this is the, you know, I, I think it's not an unfounded concern, is that this is just a, a payoff the you know, other governments. And there's sort of the, um, it, if the, if what the other side, if no matter what the problem is, the solution is always the same, then that, that's makes one skeptical. So if the answer is always like, well, we need more money for state and local governments, um, uh, that's, that's reason for skepticism. Well, I think that's an unfair um, argument because I mean, right now I, I get what you're saying and I understand the Republican talking point on this. They're going to use it to bail out their pension systems and all, pensions, that's all right, that exactly. sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is, is we know that tax revenues are way, way down for, you know, the reason that we put ourselves into this sure. lockdown for health reasons. And so this isn't just, oh, they were being irresponsible. This is all, uh, you know, a worldwide pandemic yet. And this was something right. that and, no and, and state no, there's, there's almost it, there, there's Mike, there's almost a conservative like takings kind of argument right there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I can see that. So so I'm I'm saying I, I think it should be part of the package. OK. Uh but uh, I think, you know, maybe the way to do it, and I, I think this will come out in negotiations, is is to try to link it to those actual tax losses. Uh, we talked about this in the original. Well, yeah, papers, and the problem right? with that is the money's kind of fungible, the right? Is that places that were broke in the first place um, uh, shouldn't get a? I mean, it, it's it's almost exactly the same as the unemployment argument we just we just had. I mean, you shouldn't. Um, uh, you know, be in a better position uh, than, than you were because of the I see pandemic. what you're saying. Sure. And, and you can make you can make a probably do some sort of state by state calculation of what their predicted revenues were and what yeah. their cost to deal directly with covid were and, and based on it. Yeah, I'd be I'd absolutely be for that. No question. Yeah. And I think okay. that would get that would give Republicans some cover to say, listen, we are making sure that state and local governments are receiving the money they need to continue to provide essential services and, and pay first yeah. responders and all that kind of stuff. OK. Um, so, yeah, but, we actually agree the same on that. Time, it's not not a windfall. And, hey, we're going to use this to bail out our pensions uh, or to, uh, you know, just yeah. just make make state and local government bigger. OK, yeah. You and I essentially we, we could yeah. we could work that ourselves. No question. All yeah. right. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, 
We'll we'll do the numbers <laughs> and uh, get them to Mitch. Yeah, definitely. And then finally, liability protection. And now on this, I agree that liability protection is important. And I think the fact that it wasn't included in the House legislation that passed in mid-May is a problem. But I would also argue that a number of states have already, you know, already have liability protections and many are currently working on additional COVID-related protections. And also that this is traditionally very much a state-level thing. And so what Republicans, the party of, you know, federalism are proposing is a federalization of tort law. And uh, I think that's a that's a pretty big deal here. And I kind of wanted to get your take on that. You know, I, I actually, this is and an, a, a, again, one, I, I do believe that the um, uh, immunity is is a big piece of this and it's absolutely needed. Um, second, uh, I my my preference would be for state immunity bills yeah. um, for those very reasons that you said most of these cases ought to be brought in state court um third to the extent that a federal bill would be needed uh and and look i think that's the argument for a federal uh immunity is it it covers everybody and it's everybody knows what it is it's it's the same argument that everybody uses for what we ought to do is federally because it's uh, it's the same and fixes the problem in one fell swoop. Um, you know, on that point, Jay, before you go on, I wanted to point out that I, I absolutely agree. I think there's a lot to be said for the uniformity argument, but it's also worth pointing out that the Senate Republican version, it while it preempts state liability protections, it only does so if they're less favorable to businesses than their proposed yeah. law. So it's really not, they're not, this isn't about uniformity. It's the floor, in this it's, case. Yeah, floor, not a ceiling. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, look, I, I think that's that's important. Um, um, I I don't know what the count is right now in terms of of states that have passed uh, liability protections or not. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's let's put it this way: I think it's not an unreasonable ask. No, no, I know to do that and. Uh, and again, as much as I, I love federalism in this time of emergency, I could see the exception being, look, but this is something different. Uh, and this is um, uh, something that yeah. that would affect interstate commerce. And, um, uh, you know, and it, it depends on how you how you how you write it. too. Yeah. And, you know, another thing, uh, I because, want because the, again, also to, just to be clear, this wouldn't be uh, in any of these versions. It, it wouldn't be uh, a, a unqualified pure immunity. Uh, well, it, it would be. <laughs> and, and I mean, and that's what that's the point I wanted to make. And, you know, in yeah. reading the details of the Senate Republican bill, it would be pretty much complete. And also it would impose penalties on people who tried to sell or asked for settlements. And so but here's here's my larger point here is that if you look at that in and of itself and you're someone on the left, you say, oh, my God. This is just insane. Just like maybe if you're someone on the right and you say a trillion dollars to states when there may be only out half a trillion, that's insane. And yes, on the surface, absolutely. But the larger point is that, of course, these proposals are essentially opening bids in negotiations. And they know that. So if you ask for just what yeah. you want, then you essentially lose all your bargaining yeah, power. And I think people yeah. forget about that, which is not to say that I wouldn't be thrilled if states got a trillion dollars or, you know, a lot of corporate interests wouldn't be thrilled if they got almost complete liability protection. But 
both sides understand that that's not where it's going to end up. And I think sometimes in the race to be maximally outraged, people forget about that, that these policy proposals are, in fact, opening bids and negotiations. And I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. And then finally, let's talk about the president's executive order power. Um, this kind of came out of nowhere almost. And it yeah, was really- again, I just I just found out about this this morning as again, I was I was waking up and doing like a quick uh, pre-show uh, run through. But yeah. And part of it, it goes into the what uh, uh, John Porter Memo you uh, talks about. Uh, he's, of course, has this very, very idiosyncratic reading of the Supreme Court's decision in the DACA case. And. Uh, to try to really summarize a lot, according to Yu's interpretation, the ruling essentially means that the court said that even if the administration does something outside of the scope of its powers, that action can remain in force for years until all the legal challenges are resolved. And so I sort of agree with him in a way, though I don't think the court was saying that at all. But uh, it, it's kind of an argument that the president can kind of sort of ignore his constitutional duty to faithfully execute the laws until he's forced to do so, which is a, that's a, that's a pretty bold argument for executive. Well, but, it, but it is kind of the DACA argument a little bit, isn't it? I mean, well, um, well it's but not so, actually. Setting, setting that aside. It's, uh, yeah, not, it's not actually because what, what Justice Roberts wrote in the majority opinion in the DACA ruling was that the administration had to provide some sort of justification for reversing a policy and just saying, well, we're stopping it because we think it's illegal. That isn't enough. And so it wasn't the court saying to the administration, hey, do illegal stuff and, uh, you know, just wait for it to work its way through the courts. And that's so and almost nobody really agrees with Yu's view on that, at least legal scholars and so forth, though. It's obviously very compelling to President Trump. And, and you know, we've talked about use of executive orders and so forth. And I think both of us agree that that. Uh, President Obama overstepped. And actually, President Obama is then DACA. That wasn't an executive order. That was a department memorandum, but it has the same effect. Right. Executive branch. Yeah. yeah. But I think when I heard that, when I heard that, well, White House negotiators said, well, you know, that's fine. Negotiations broke down too bad, but we'll just do this, what we can through executive orders. My, my initial response was, oh, my God, that's awful. And I yeah. assume that's probably your initial response, too. It is. It is. Um, no, it, it's awful from a legal standpoint. Um, and I would I would uh, agree that in most cases, I, I wouldn't think that the president would have the authority to do uh, what he's proposing. Yeah, and that's going to be There's a lot of different yeah. things he's proposing. And I think I think there might be some some of those boxes that he, he, he probably does have authority to put an order out. Um, but spending new money and, and so forth, that sort of thing, uh, I, I think that that's probably a non-starter but I, I look at this more in the political negotiation part of it right um and 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 in in that way in some ways i think it's kind of brilliant right um he says look i'm willing to do this and and that and uh, they won't um so i'll go ahead and, and do it and you know what democrats if you want to sue me which they uh, will yeah. for, for doing this well okay you can go ahead and do that and and well, maybe I'll lose. Uh, I'll likely lose. Um, but but he'll go down on. I mean, I I think he he makes the political record there. So I, you know, I I, I get it, and um, uh, I I would I would agree that I, I think the presidential authority question on that is is probably a loser. 
but I think politically it's it it is a winner and it's it's part of this negotiation piece and part yeah. of this uh process to bring some pressure uh on the other side to get this settled yeah. and and I think it'll be effective so you know and one final thing on this I wanted to I at least comment on is it you know it's interesting to me and it's kind of sad to me that the negotiations were between the White House and the House and so I mean, I get what Mitch McConnell is doing here. He basically doesn't want any part of any of this, wants to, you know, absolve the Senate of uh, Senate Republicans of any responsibility. But it just seems to me that Mitch McConnell has gone from a position of saying, well, we want to make sure we know where the president is on these things before we do anything to essentially outsourcing legislation to the White House. And, you know, maybe politically that makes sense, but. I just think it's really sort of a sad commentary on where we're at, where the Senate Majority Leader just basically says, you know, we're not going to legislate. We'll just let the White House take care of that. And that's that's really that's really depressing and disheartening to me. Um, you know, I view it a little differently. First of all, I mean, there, there, there were Senate proposals. Um, but there was right? no negotiation. Just, I mean, I mean, that, right, because the Senate just said, no, we'll let the White House do this. I mean, right. The, but the idea but that there are also, co-equal branches that the Senate legislates. I. I guess that's just not a thing. There's, for also, there's also the, the strategy of, of, you know, good cop, bad cop. Um, and, Wait, and I think who's the, who's, who's, might be, who's, bad cop, worse cop, maybe. I'm not cop, sure the, the good cop, cop is in this here. Case would be Trump. So you negotiate you with know, the bad the, the cop? Trump, Trump is, is going to yell and scream about this. He's going to do exec, you know, I'm going to do executive orders. Hmm. Uh, and, and McConnell at the, some point would, the, I think the strategy would be he could go to the house and say, look, um, uh, Trump's nuts, but you know what? I think we can get you, we can get you X, Y, and Z. Will that get the deal done? When is, so, when is McConnell again, ever I, done I that? Though? I think there's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of kabuki theater here. Um, and it's, it's not that it's anything particularly new and, and, you know, McConnell also has the, you know, I think there's, there's the, the possibility that if this is something that Trump doesn't like, he, he well could veto it again. That's that's really kind of getting down the down the path. But you, that's something you would you would might be more concerned about Trump doing than you would uh, say George Bush doing. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, again, I see where you're coming from, but um, uh, I, I don't. Uh, you know, on the other hand, it's sort of look if if uh, the Senate was negotiating all of this. There would be people screaming about why isn't Trump showing more leadership on this uh, sure. relief pact? Sure, I mean there's so. there's a balance to be, and of course you know this uh, the, the fact that the Senate that that the Senate didn't release its proposal uh, until there were literally days for the expiration of this that I think is also a failure of leadership when the House released its proposal in mid May and that's a long time ago. Well, so. the, the House got House got to have the opening bid. And yeah, and, and the Senate could have responded much sooner than it did. I think it's uh, no. I think it's highly irresponsible for them to have waited for that long. Certainly, and there would have been a better chance of something happening. But we are, we're at where we're at. And while I certainly respect Mitch McConnell as a tactician and his interest, his abiding interest in keeping the Republican Party in power in the Senate, I think that he has uh, he has abrogated his responsibility as as a legislative leader, and he's never really been much of a legislative leader in any case. So, so uh, once again, Mitch, if he's listening, probably just hung his head down. And, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I walk you know, away in tears. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I said it before. I think you know, Donald yeah. Trump is is who he is. And to a certain extent, while I, you know, while I certainly don't like him, I sort of get 
who he is and why he is. But Mitch McConnell, I, I, I think Mitch McConnell's a far more in, in many ways. Your, a far your argument more, is essentially Mitch should know better. Yeah, Mitch does know better. And so yeah. Mitch, Mitch, I find uh, I find Mitch McConnell to be a, I find Donald Trump to be a broken man. And I find uh, a damaged man. I find Mitch McConnell just to be a, a reprehensible man. Uh, the, the worst right. of Machiavellian politics. And I, 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 I don't want to say despise, but I just uh, he, he turns my stomach in so many ways. So there we go. All right. All right. That, that said, I think we'll have a deal within the next uh, by the time we're back from our break. I think there will be a deal. I, I don't think that I hope you're right. I don't think there will be, but I really hope you're right. So so we will we will see. All right. Um, Moving on. Wow, that was that t- that took a while, but that's OK. Yeah, you know, that's, you know, it's that. yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about elections, because, you know, there were a bunch of elections this past week in Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, Washington, and Tennessee. And I think a particular interest, a couple of things. Number one, the defeat of Chris Kobach in, in the Kansas Republican U.S. Senate primary, and also the defeat of longtime incumbent uh, Lacey Clay, who lost his St. Louis House Democratic primary to challenger Cory Bush. And then finally, Missouri voters approving Medicaid expansion in a ballot initiative, which will extend benefits to somewhere over 200,000 low-income residents of the state. So three things here, all that I think are pretty important going forward. And Jay, let's start with Kansas. Uh, this involves your party's primary. Why is Kobach's primary loss generally seen as a positive thing for Senate Republicans going into November? I think because they're probably thinking that the the primary uh, uh, challenger who, who now won is the better candidate. Yeah, uh, that, well, that's I mean, better in being certainly more uh, electable. Not a whole lot uh, to dig deeper in that. Um, look, there's there is there's an argument. You know, there are two ways to look at this. Sometimes people say primaries are uh, bad because they waste money, they stir up ill will among your voters. Uh, they risk alienating some of your voters who then won't go uh, pull the lever for the uh, the, the candidate uh, who eventually wins. Um, in in my experience, and you would probably you know maybe have the research and numbers to show this, uh, that doesn't happen that often. Um, I, I think uh, voters, especially Republican voters, uh, more so than Democrats, I guess. Um, you know, the old, the old saw, uh, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Um, I, I, I think there is, there is sort of a thing of, okay, well, we support the, the candidate who, uh, who won the primary. I mean, we're some like weird exceptions would be like that Alabama race, from a Moore, couple sure. years, um, where the candidate was just, uh, you know, got awful for a whole lot of reasons. Um, but, um, uh, I, I I, I think that's you know the other the other side of it is um, primaries are are good for your party and that they uh, uh, vet out uh, you know they they call the herd a little bit and you, you end up with the stronger candidate uh, who is who has faced uh, some pressure uh, has been fully vetted and uh, is is in a better place to uh, to to run in the general. Yeah. And, and in this Kansas Senate seat, I mean, I think that this was uh, even if, if Clutch had won, it would have been a lean Republican race or, you know, likely Republican. But it would have at least potentially put it into place a pretty strongly uh, a Republican Republican state, you know, in terms of in terms of Senate seats, certainly. Now, 
the House race is a little bit differently on, on the Democrat side. Uh, you know, Lacey Clay had been representing this district since 2001, uh, a black politician whose father represented the district since 1969. So it's been in the Clay family for over over <laughs> 50 years, you know, it's a kind of a local you know, political dynasty, essentially. And Bush actually ran against Clay in 2018, lost by around 20 points. There was this Netflix documentary that was done after that, which featured AOC and also and also Bush. Uh, and uh, uh, she that attracted some attention. Bush had got more funding. And of course, at the aftermath of the George Floyd and so forth killings, this was this was not a case like an AOC of some just like kind of milk toast, you know, middle of the road kind of conservative Democrat being ousted. You know, Lacey Clay is a very, you know, progressive Democrat and so forth. So this is, you know, this is, I think, a little more surprising. It's not going to matter in, in not a... Not surprising to me. Well, I mean, it's not going to matter in the sense that this this seat was going to go to whoever the Democratic nominee was, no matter what. That's just kind of how most House districts are. But it does possibly move the party. I mean, Clay is a, a bit more to the left, not colossally more to the left of of Clay on, on certain is issues. More, more to the left. What, what's that? Yeah, you said Clay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bush, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Bush is more to the left of Clay. But, you know, well, I, I, I'd say it, it matters to Nancy Pelosi. You know, I think it matters. And again, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe not, not yet. Right. Because this is, this is one race, but yeah. those, those races start to add up eventually. Yeah, you know, and 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 I think we we certainly have seen more of that. I, I think of it a lot of, in a lot of ways as sort of the the Democratic version of the the Tea Party thing that we saw on the right. You know, in the wake of in 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 the 2000, 2010 and going forward, that sort of thing. And so so yeah, and certainly primaries are the are the place where you would see that that sort of thing happen, and we've been seeing it in the Democratic Party. Um, you know, I. A bigger deal, not a bigger deal, uh, but well, certainly. Can I, I mean, can I just throw oh, yeah, please my, do. my observation? And yeah, this please is, do. This is something that, uh, you know, I had floated a, a couple of weeks ago, um, and that is that uh, if you are a, a Democrat, uh, you can never be woke enough. There will there will always be someone who can who can out out woke you, if you will, uh, and I think this is this is sort of one of those one of those situations. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's that's true in certain circumstances. It matters more in some districts than others, right? I mean, this is, and so that's just right. kind of how it's going. It's going. It's going to be in the more, the more ironically, right, and and the more left leaning sort of districts. Uh, it's it's going to be a bigger problem, right? Exactly. Just like on the right, you can say, you as know, you get, as you get be closer more. to the the uh, event horizon of the black hole, you fall even faster. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I on both on both sides of things, yeah, certainly, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and I, I certainly agree with that. You know, and that's not something I'm crazy about on either side of it. Um, and then, of course, the Medicaid expansion thing. Uh, what's interesting to me about this is that now there have been six states that have expanded Medicaid through ballot initiatives since Donald Trump has, has taken office. And, and this all kind of comes from something called the Fairness Project, which was this thing, uh, this, this nonprofit that was started in 2016, came out of a, a California health healthcare workers union. And they decided that they felt that there were a lot of people who really wanted expanded Medicare, 
but that largely Republican governors and legislatures were not interested in providing that. And so they put a lot of effort into these ballot initiatives. And in fact, every time it's been on the ballot, it's passed and, and it's been very, very, very successful. And now there are 12 states currently that have decided to not expand Medicaid. Only four of those actually have referendum processes, and those are Florida, Mississippi, South Dakota, and Wyoming. And so of those, Florida is the next kind of big target for this, uh, for this group. And I just think this is a great example of how sometimes on these issues that, you know, that you can see cases where the legislature and the governor are acting against the public will. And I think this is a case where I'm glad there's a referendum process, especially like in Missouri, where it's done through a constitutional amendment, because in other states where this has been done, it was done through this just kind of standard referendum process, what the legislature, what the governor could do and the legislature is put like different addendums and revise it so that they could sort of weaken the weaken the benefits, whereas in this case, that really can't be done without going back to the people. And so I think this is a very positive development, and I wish the Fairness Project all the best success in Florida in expanding Medicaid benefits to uh, as many people as possible. So I, I uh, you know, one, there's there's the policy of Medicaid expansion, and, and I can see both sides on that. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think it is a fiscal time bomb. Um, at least that's what what I would have argued, um, uh, you know, six months ago. But to some extent, that the bombs already gone off, um, you know, and 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 we are where we are. Uh, my bigger concern, I think, this is the and this this goes to more than Medicaid expansion is uh, putting things into uh, state constitutions uh, by amendment, putting policy pieces into state constitutions by amendment. Um, the the problem being if if you have enough money uh you can essentially get get something in the constitution as opposed to look if you want to enact the statute by referendum uh that's that's a different different situation because you still have that uh ability to uh have the, the legislature tweak it uh somewhere down the road uh or or you know it's an easier repeal uh and especially something like this you know medicaid expansion um, it's it's an easier uh, fix when the, these are things that need to be adjusted uh, occasionally. Um, and I'm 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 opposed to putting in uh, a, a brand new. Um, again, I'm not in Missouri, so it's yeah. not my problem. But um, I want to I want to agree I think, with I you. That's, I think that's an issue because because yeah. that's that's happened in a lot of states where, um, and you and I are are both sort of uh, small R Republicans, right? Uh, so, uh, I would say, well, we certainly, uh, you know, I think it's good that there is that safety valve of a referendum or, or repeal, uh, issue if the legislature does something, uh, or refuses to do something. Uh, I think it's, it's bad, uh, precedent to write it into the constitution. Yeah. And I, I will agree with you that it, it is not ideal because as you point out, you know, legislation tends to be, when done correctly, uh, is an iterative process. As you, you you put something into effect, you say, oh, this didn't quite work right. We need to tweak it, as you said, and that's how the process works. And, and that random also tends to be sort of a blunt instrument. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I if, and this is where you and I will probably disagree, at least we will to a certain extent, if the policy process, the political process weren't so absurdly tilted toward 
the top 1% and business interest, I, I would absolutely agree. And in, in a fairer process, no question that I, I would oppose this. But the process has become so twisted out of where, you know, where the public will oftentimes is subverted to a small minority of people who have money that this is you know, oftentimes the only way to kind of get around that sort of thing. And so my answer to that would be to fix the process so that the public will can be uh, can be more taken into account as opposed to a tiny minority of people who just happen to have a lot of money, which is translated into political influence. Wow. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Jean-Jacques uh, Rousseau there. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'd also point out that, look, running these uh, statewide referendum is not cheap. No, not at all. There are these, and that is, that's, I think, the bigger, uh, big concern is you can have some, some moneyed interests. Yeah. Uh, I don't think saying that, that somehow a referendum is, is somehow more pure uh, than uh, than the other processes. I, I just I just don't see that. I think it's more pure because after the fact, when the, the legislation is all done, then there's the behind the scenes sort of uh, in the in the legislative lobbies where the interests kind of go to work and there's not the public attention. And it's easy to make those sort of tweaks or adjustments that almost nobody knows about. And they they they. Uh, tend to favor far more the uh, money interest than, than the public, which, you know, isn't, isn't necessarily being told about these things. So. But I, I mean, I'm going to push back a little bit on the, when you say that the, the lobbyists and so forth, again, a lot of times I think lobbyists get painted with a, a uh, broad brush and, and wrongfully because a lot of times the people who are doing the lobbying on either side, uh, are and you would appreciate this the experts on on the issue right and they can say hey look this uh, referendum piece as it's drafted this constitutional amendment as it's drafted is a really blunt instrument and it, you know if passed this way it'll screw up x y and z and have these other consequences that maybe the drafters have not fully thought out um and i think that's that's what's important is the to the legislative process rather than uh, the the referendum process because there, again the referendum process can be just an easy hey we want X uh, and and hey now it's in the constitution so yeah I, I think the money's a problem either way and if if anything the money's more of a problem uh, in a referendum than it is in regular legislation yeah and uh, that 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 would be a subject for a much would agree with me. Yeah, that would be that them, would be subject for shouting yes what's that Jay's right and I think your dogs would agree with me. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, the, the Amazon, the Amazon truck, the Amazon truck just came, and so yeah, if you hear that in the background, there is, there is a whole lot of craziness going on. So it's been coming a lot more. My, my birthday's in a couple of days, and so I'm hoping there's cool stuff for me. You know, I, I'm in favor of some capitalism. <laughs> anyway, uh, but but yeah, that that is definitely subject for a much deeper, I think, and longer conversation. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll hold that for another time, and I think that pretty much does it for us today. But before we end, let's uh, let's have our recommendations for this week. And actually, I want to recommend uh, something from the conservative side. I recently started subscribing to the Bulwarks, the Bulwarks Daily Newsletter. It's a it's a conservative website. And it's a great website. I, I like the newsletter even better because it's just a handy way to get sort of a what I would consider a, re, a, a rational, reasonable conservative view on a wide variety of topics. Um, they they started the book started in 2018, and they say they're dedicated to uh, how do they put it? Providing political analysis and reporting free from the constraints of partisan loyalties or tribal prejudices. Now that said, they are definitely an organ of 
conservative thought, but I found I found that they their authors, their writers have a lot of interesting viewpoints, to, and I don't always agree with them, but I almost always appreciate what they're bringing to the debate. And so I would say if you are someone of the left who has struggled to find a conservative news source, aside from Jay, of course, and, and Kristen I, and, and, and I'm not available. Yeah. That, you know, I, I think it's worth checking out. And like I said, the nice thing about the newsletter it just pops up and you can scan the, the top articles. And I found it to be very worthwhile. And so that is my recommendation for this week. Jay, what do you have? Right. So um, I'm uh, reading uh, a book by Princeton historian uh, Sean Willens uh, called No Property in Man. Um, at least as, as far as I know, he's still with Princeton. They haven't canned him yet. Um, but uh, it, it is a, you know, sort of a pre-rebuttal. The book was written in uh, 2018, um, but it almost serves as sort of a, a, like I said, a pre-rebuttal of a lot of the 1619 uh, project stuff. Um, the, the thesis of the 1619 project is that, you know, I, I will I will condense it briefly, but that the country was all about slavery, was founded for slavery and keeping slavery. And, and that's that's the, the you know the central point. And the Constitution was about slavery. Uh, Willens points out, uh, makes a, a really good argument, I think, in that the drafters of the Constitution uh, worked, were, were well aware uh, of the evils of slavery and worked to uh, create its, its eventual demise, put things in motion. Uh, that would end slavery. Um, uh, a lot of this is based on Madison's notes, uh, which were not released until after his death. So you had this, there's this weird period in, in American history uh, going up to the Civil War where, um, you know, I'm sorry, it was maybe 50 years after Madison's death. Even. Um, but they weren't available uh, at the time. A lot of folks like your your John C. Calhouns and your your Pickerings were making arguments that hey, this is what the founders intended was was slavery. Um, but his his big point is uh, so much of of where slavery is mentioned, there were big fights uh, to avoid one the word slavery or the word slaves uh, and talk about persons, uh, and and that that was sort of setting the table because there were so many. Uh, uh, delegates who did not want uh any sort of recognition or or uh blessing of of uh, slavery in in the text of the constitution uh while at the same time realizing uh the the political will if they're going to have a constitution um they they couldn't uh um you know you they, they there were concessions that had to be made to get the southern states on on board um but anyway, it's it's uh, fascinating, and I I think it's a great look at uh, a great a great rebuttal to this argument that we are somehow a, a racist nation uh, from our very birth, and uh, you know, irretrievably flawed, and so forth. Yeah, sounds interesting. And again, that will that along with the the bullet link will be in the show notes. Also, I wanted to mention that there were a number of things that we didn't get to today that we will kind of move over to our supporters exclusive Wednesday show. And that's a, uh, we hadn't talked about the TikTok issue uh, and we'll get into that as well as uh, more on voting by mail and uh, kind of a change in message by president Trump and sort of the, uh, the intricacies of that maybe. And possibly we'll also get into some 
listener mail questions as well. And again, if you are a supporter, that will be in your, uh, you'll be here, you'll be getting that uh, at some point. Uh, well, Wednesday, I think is when it comes. Yeah, it drops on Wednesday. I should know this. I do it. Anyway, that will be there in your feed. If you're not, just sign up to become a supporter, patreon.com slash politics guys. And again, remember, please, if you can't afford to become a supporter, it's really no big deal. I'm happy to set you up with these midweek episodes. Just email me, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you taken care of. Also, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that really does help us out, as do ratings and reviews, and also especially sharing episodes on social media, email, however you want to do it, carrier pigeon, you name it. And if you want to get in touch with us, mail politicsguys.com, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit and our Facebook page in the show notes there. And finally, a special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. Today's show was produced by me, Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show, well, a different kind of show, as I mentioned, next week and then our next regular show two weeks from now. We hope you'll join us.